And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Have you ever contemplated all of the different aspects of life that are called new when we read from Matthew through the book of Revelation? Jesus himself and the apostles speak frequently about these things that Christ is making new. There is a new covenant, of course, that we have been studying about. There is a new Jerusalem, new creation, new commandment, new man, new song, new wineskins, new way, new heavens, new earth, new name, even a new birth. Indeed, all things are made new, declares the New Testament. Jesus is in the process of redeeming and renewing virtually everything that we know. Tonight, we're going to focus in on these new things at three different levels. New things at the individual level, new things at the national level, and new things at the cosmic level. And we're going to begin with the first one, new things at an individual level. That, of course, is what the Bible calls a new creation. We are new creatures in Christ. And you may be familiar with this passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which speaks of this, where the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. There, the apostle is teaching us and reminding us that we are no longer under the Adamic nature, that sin-controlled nature, but we are new creatures in Christ. This is what Paul meant when he said, it is no longer I who live, but Christ in me, because he has made us something that we were not before. And we talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We mentioned this last week, and indeed other weeks in the past, as a reference to the new covenant from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Remember we contrasted there the old covenant, the new covenant. The old covenant had a ministry where it 
revealed to Israel that they were sinners, that they were in need of Christ. That was the old covenant. The new covenant is a ministry of the Spirit. And we talked about how the Spirit serves at uh, in, in several ways we looked at last week, and the Spirit ministers to us at the individual level. The Spirit serves us in the new covenant through the process of regeneration, through creating that new birth. You recall the dialogue that Jesus had with the Pharisee Nicodemus. When Nicodemus came out at night and he inquired of Jesus some things, and Jesus said, I tell you that unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus, of course, wrestles with this. And he says, what do you mean? Am I supposed to get back in my mother's womb and have a new birth? And Jesus says, no, unless you're born of the water and the spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And he describes there how the flesh begets flesh. But it is the Spirit that produces something spiritual. And the new birth is a work of the Spirit of God. And Jesus goes on to say the Spirit uh, roams around like the wind. You can only see its effects. You can't actually see which direction it's going. It does what it will, but we see the results of its work. When someone is born anew, we know the Spirit has been at work. That is one of the ministries of the Spirit in the new covenant for us at the individual level. We also talked about this circumcision of the heart, the new covenant circumcision, where the Holy Spirit gives us the desire now to please God and to obey Him, to keep the commandments that are written on our minds and on our heart. Last week, in particular, we talked about how the Spirit works in us as individuals in our prayers, how He mediates and takes our prayers and presents them to the Father in a way that is acceptable to Him. And we discussed how the Spirit works in leading us in righteousness, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so on. And how we who are sons and daughters of God are putting to death the deeds of the flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's part of His work in us at the individual level. And finally, we talked about how the Holy Spirit confirms in our soul, in our spirit, that we are indeed children of God. It's the internal evidence where the, the Spirit confirms and He says, yes, you are mine, you do belong to me. It's, it's what Paul said, by the Spirit, we cry out to the Father, not just, O Sovereign One, not just God, but we call Him Daddy. We call Him. God himself, Abba, Father. That is by the work and the power of the Holy Spirit in us at the individual level. And we looked at that last week. Tonight we're going to look at the other two levels. The next would be the national level. What the scripture teaches us is that the Holy Spirit has created a new people of God. And you've probably picked up on this already in weeks past when we've looked at the Old Covenant and the outline of Israel and God's relationship with Israel. But tonight we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2 where the Apostle Paul goes into great detail about what God has done in making this new people of God at what I'm calling the national level. And we're going to pick up in chapter 2 verse 11 of the book of Ephesians, where Paul writes this, Therefore, remember that formerly you 
the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Let me pause there just for a minute. Paul here is making very clear who he's talking about. He's describing the Jews as the circumcision, and he, he takes the time to make sure that his audience understands that this circumcision was done in the flesh. This is not the spirit circumcision. This is the physical circumcision of the physical people group uh, that we call the Jews, and they call the Gentiles the uncircumcised or the uncircumcision. He says, remember that you Gentiles were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. Paul is reminding these Ephesian Gentiles, and this would be true of all Gentiles before the time of Christ, they were strangers or apart from Christ. They did not have the promise of the coming Redeemer and the coming Messiah. The Persians did not have writings from the prophet Isaiah, say, that spoke of the suffering servant who would someday come and take upon him all of their iniquities and all of their trespasses. They didn't have the prophets going around reminding the people that one day God is going to send his Redeemer. The Babylonians did not have that. The Greeks did not have that. Alexander the Great was not given a statement from one of God's prophets that said, for unto us a child is born, a son is given, who will take the government upon his shoulders and it will be increasing forever. Alexander didn't have that. The only kingdom he knew about was his own kingdom. He did not know of a future kingdom of the Messiah Redeemer who would come and bear the penalty for the sins of his people. We were cut off. Gentiles were separated from the message of Christ. Paul says here, you were not part of the citizenry, the, the commonwealth of Israel. You were not part of the nation that God had set apart for himself. He says, you were not part of the covenants of promise. You didn't have them. You were strangers to them. Think about what we've already talked about in terms of the old covenant. God had established this relationship with Israel. And he promised them that he would protect them, that he would bless them if they obeyed the terms of the covenant. And part of that covenant was the promise that they would be a holy nation, distinct from all the others. That they would be a kingdom, an entire nation of priests who ministered in the very presence of God. That they would be a people for his very own possession, special to him. None of the Gentile nations had those promises from God. God did not go to Nebuchadnezzar and say, if you will obey me, you'll be unique and special and privileged. You'll be my bride. He didn't do that. He didn't do that with the Romans, nobody else. That was strictly for Israel. And Paul is reminding the Gentiles that before Christ came, this was their status. They were not special to God. They were cut off. And then he makes these two comments. He said, you had no hope and were without God in the world. Do you ever think of that? Think of some of the giant intellects of antiquity, brilliant people. Think of the, the philosophers, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. These men were not idiots. They were extremely intelligent men. They shaped and formed Western culture. 
their influence continues to our own day. And they were able to use the minds that God had given them to, uh, to grow and expand in learning in many, many ways. And yet, they lived their entire lives and died without hope, without any opportunity for salvation before God. Because in all their reasoning and all their philosophical inquiry, they could get to some idea of a creator God, but they could never get to a saving God who would come and join us in the human race, who would die on the cross for our sins. They could never get to the gospel simply by pondering natural world. And Paul says the Gentiles were without hope. This is a sobering statement. Millions upon millions upon millions of people lived and died knowing there was a creator, but not knowing there was a coming savior. That was the status of Israel, I'm sorry, of the Gentiles prior to the coming of Christ. He said you were without hope, or they were without hope, and they were without God. Again, they knew something about the Creator. They were often able to reason back from the created order that there must be a first cause, but they had no special, loving, worshipful relationship with the living God. That was the status of everyone outside the camp of Israel for centuries, millennia even. But now, every time you see those two words in the scripture, you need to circle it and underline it and draw big arrows to it. Because every time but now occurs, something of great significance is happening. In Romans chapter 3, after describing the judgment that is upon all men because of their disobedience, Paul says, but now we are righteous in Christ. We are justified because of the gospel. It is a great phrase, and it signifies a switch from an old era to a new era. Now, that was then, that was before Christ, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You Gentiles who had no hope and were without God and were way out there have now been brought close to the living God because of the Son of God and the blood that he shed on the cross. Now we have hope, now Gentiles have hope, now Gentiles have the opportunity for that loving relationship with God. And then he says this, for he, speaking of Christ, himself is our peace. Now, when we see the word peace, talking about men, we often think of the peace that we now have with God because of the gospel. Because we were enemies of God. He hated us. We hated him because we had offended him. We were uh, evildoers. We wanted nothing to do with him. And in Christ, we have been forgiven for our sins. And the Holy Spirit has given us the circumcised heart where now we love God and he loves us. And there's that great section of Romans 5, verse 1, where Paul says, Now, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. No longer are we at odds. No longer are we his enemies. And he ours. We are reconciled. We are friends. Indeed, we are father and son or father and daughter. 
But that's not the peace Paul is talking about here. This is a peace between the Jews and the Gentiles. Look at what he says. He himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Prior to the coming of Christ, there was a wall that put the Jews over here and the Gentiles over there. A barrier like the Berlin Wall separating one side from the other and people couldn't go back and forth. And this separated them. He said it was a barrier. It's a dividing wall. He said now he has brought peace by breaking down this dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity between the Jews and the Gentiles, the hostility which is the law of commandments in ordinances. This wall that separates the Jews from the Gentiles prior to the coming of Christ is the law, the covenant, the old covenant law. It was a barrier between the two. Now, why is that? How did the law, the covenant that God made with Israel, put up a barrier between the Jews and the Gentiles. Well, we might get some clue back in Deuteronomy chapter 20. Here again, Moses is speaking to the young generation, the second generation of Israel, who is about to enter into the promised land after the older generation died off in the wilderness because God punished them for the dis disobedience, for the lack of faith. The new generation is about to enter into the promised land and Moses is preparing them to take over the land of Canaan. And in chapter 20, he is explaining to Israel how they are to go about the wars they will fight with the other nations as they enter into the promised land. And beginning in verse 10, he says this. When you approach a city... To fight against it, you shall offer it terms of peace. If it agrees to make peace with you and opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall become your forced labor and shall serve you. How's that for a peace treaty? We're going to come and attack you, but if you're willing to sign right here, we'll make this deal. We'll let you live so long as you become our slaves and do everything we say. You think that would go over today in, our, in peace talks around the world? Now, why does God establish that particular kind of relationship between Israel and these nations they're about to conquer? Remember the terms of the covenant. God promised to Israel, if they obeyed, all of their enemies, which were all of the other nations, would serve them. Israel would be the head, not the tail. They would not borrow from anyone. Other nations would be borrowing from them. They would exercise dominion and rule over all of the surrounding peoples. Israel was an enemy of the other nations by virtue of God saying, I have set you apart and you are to conquer everyone else. That made them enemies. And so if every, all the other nations are going to serve Israel and be dominated by them, if Israel allows them to persist, they have to be servants. They have to be slaves of Israel. And so Moses says, if you go in there and they're willing to make peace, 
great, here are the terms. They serve you and they do all of your labor. However, if it does not make peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. When the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall strike all the men in it with the edge of the sword. Only the women and the children and the animals and all that is in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as booty for yourself, and you shall use the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not of the cities of the nations nearby. So as you go into uh, take over the promised land and you begin to conquer, and if these nations will not make peace with you, then you declare war on them and you kill all the men but you can preserve the women and the children and the animals for yourselves. You can take the women as your wives. You can make slaves out of the children. You can own their other property. But did you notice what he said? Those are for the nations that are far off on the outskirts in the far regions. He's got a different command for those nations that are close, those nations that currently occupy the promised land. He says in verse 16, only in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes, but you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite and the Perizzite, the Hivite and the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you so that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable deeds which they have done for their gods so that you would not so that you would sin against the Lord your God those nations that occupy the promised land that they are about to overtake Moses says don't leave anyone or anything alive men women children dogs of course cats all living things were to be destroyed by the Jews when they went into the land. God is very concerned that if they leave any remnant of these people, they will lead Israel into idolatry to offer sacrifices to false gods, even to the extent of offering their children as sacrifices. And do you know the story? They didn't kill all of the people when they took over the land. And exactly what God warned them of happened. They adopted the evil ways of these foreign nations and they committed idolatry against God, thus invoking his wrath from the covenant. Do you see in this description how clear it is? Jews, everybody else, they're at war. The Jews were hostile toward the other nations because of the covenant. They were to destroy the other nations. Israel was used as an instrument in God's hands of judgment upon those other nations. We learn from other passages. And so throughout the ages, the Jews and the Gentiles, because of the covenant terms that God made with Israel, they were at odds. They were at enmity with one another. And this persisted. The Jews were constantly at war. Usually they were on the receiving end of a good whipping because they broke the covenant and God brought other nations in judgment. Throughout the intertestamental period, for a very brief moment, just a blip on the, on the span of history, the Jews gained their independence. But then here comes Rome 
to conquer them yet again. And maybe we understand a little bit more now of why the Jews were so desperately hoping that the Messiah King would come and conquer all their enemies. They literally thought Messiah would come and cast off Rome, overthrow Caesar, and dominate the world according to the terms of the Old Covenant. And they weren't going to allow the other Gentile nations to be part of their people group because the law, the covenant, stood as this barrier between the Jews and the Gentiles. Jews were the special people of God. Gentiles were dogs who did not deserve to live. But in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul tells us that God has now brought these two enemies into a reconciled relationship by abolishing in his flesh the law. He took upon himself the curses of the law and thereby broke down this barrier. That wall did come down. And as he says in the next phrase, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, establishing peace. Now there is no longer a distinction between the Jew and the Gentile. Now there's only one distinction that matters. That is, in Christ or out of Christ, that is the only barrier now. You're either in Christ and special to God or you're out of Christ and you are his enemy. Christ has taken down that covenant and now there's no longer distinction. We are reconciled, we are at peace, he says, that he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. Verse 18, for through him, that is through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Saints here referring to the Old Testament saints, the, the believers. You are fellow citizens with them and are God's household, having been built up on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Now we're getting to the ministry of the Spirit at the national level. The Spirit takes these two groups, brings them together, and those who are in Christ through the Spirit have access to the Father himself. No longer Jew, no longer gentle, that doesn't matter. What matters is if you're in Christ through the Spirit, you can get to the Father. And notice all this terminology here, this talk about the temple and the household of God. This reminds probably of 1 Peter chapter 2, where Peter there says, Christ is the foundation and he's building a new temple of living stones. We are those living stones being built up one upon another into the temple of God. The, the, the presence of God used to dwell in a physical building, in the middle of the Israeli camp. Now the Spirit dwells 
in a spiritual building, the church. And Paul says that's us, Jews and Gentiles who are in Christ. And we are all God's household being built up in this spirit. That is the ministry of the spirit at the national level. That's what the Spirit is doing corporately in the body of Christ, bringing the Jews and Gentiles together. Now, Paul goes on in chapter 3 to give us a very key piece of information about this new covenant. He says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote you in brief, and Paul does this a lot. He starts an if-then statement and never gets to the then. And he kind of comes back to something else. But he's basically saying, I was commissioned to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Maybe you've heard about that. And I was given this mystery. Now, in the Bible, mystery has a very specific meaning. When you see the word mystery in the scripture, it's talking about something that was previously hidden that has now been uncovered. It's not a detective scene. We're not looking around trying to figure out who the perpetrator is. It's something that was there, but hidden, and now has been disclosed, now has been revealed. So verse 4, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. There is something about the coming of Christ that was hidden, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Something the Spirit has, has revealed, some new information that is given to the apostles and the prophets that were not given to the Jews and the people of old. What is it, Paul? What is this mystery? That the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The whole plan that the Gentiles would be included into this one new man was not clearly revealed to Abraham, to Moses, to King David, but it has been revealed to the Apostle Paul as the servant of Christ to the Gentiles. Think about Jeremiah 31, we've looked at that passage in, in, in several times as quoted in Hebrews chapter 8, where God says, I will make a new covenant. It is the classic new covenant passage. And one of the questions that always comes up, many of you have asked me this question, this, the text here says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And that has caused many scholars over the years to question whether or not there's another new covenant. Maybe we're missing the point. Maybe we're not part of the new covenant or there's a future new covenant because this seems to say pretty clearly the new covenant's gonna be with Israel. But do you see what Paul is doing here? In Ephesians chapter three, he's saying God didn't reveal this to Jeremiah, but he revealed it to me and I'm telling you this hidden aspect that has now been disclosed is that God is making the two into one new man. Gentiles are part of the promises of God. This new covenant that God's making with the house of Judah and the house of Israel is going to include those who were formerly far off. Beloved, that's why you and I today are in the new covenant. Because God had 
meant and intended all along for the Gentiles to be part of this. He just didn't tell anybody about it until he called the apostles. Listen to how he goes on in verse 8. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given, this grace to preach the good news, to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that in the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul is saying this was part of God's plan from the very beginning. His eternal plan through the ages has always been to bring Jews and Gentiles together into this new nation, this new people of God, the corporate, the church, the body of Christ. But God didn't reveal this in times past, but now he has. This is new information for the Gentiles and for the Jews. Had they known this, they might have treated Gentiles a little bit differently. And maybe they wouldn't have been quite so arrogant with respect to the people of God and their own calling. But Paul says, this is new information, but I'm here to tell you the mystery has been revealed. Now it's all who believe the gospel together as the new people of God. The Jews, ethnic Israel, as we've said before, they are no longer the unique, special people of God. Now it is the church. We are the Israel, Jews and Gentiles together, who are in Christ. This is the new man, the new corporate level, the new national level, and the Spirit is the one giving us access to the Father, bringing us together, and building up this spiritual house, this spiritual temple. I want to look at the third level, that is the cosmic level. Where Christ is doing a new thing. Think about God's presence with mankind throughout the Bible. In the beginning, God created Adam and Eve, and he walked in the garden with Adam and Eve in a special relationship, a special communion and fellowship. This is all before the fall. Then after the fall, God's presence was with the people of Israel in the tabernacle and later the temple, in the middle of the camp. But as we talked about in weeks past, there was that veil that separated the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum where God dwelt, so that mankind could not get in there. Remember, the high priest one time a year was able to enter, but everyone else saw the big sign that said, do not enter, beware, danger, no access, you don't have clearance. And so though God dwelt among the people, they couldn't get to him because he was closed off. Then comes the new covenant. And remember the promises of the new covenant that we've talked about in Ezekiel, for instance. I will put my spirit in them. I will indwell them. 
And the scripture tells us in the New Testament that that's exactly what happens. In the New Covenant, the Holy Spirit of God indwells us, fills us. He is here present in us. We talked about that last week, walking in the Spirit because the living God indwells us. But there is coming a day when we're going to be in the Garden of Eden again when God will walk with his people and we will be in his manifest presence. I read this to you at the beginning from Revelation 21. Let me read this again. Behold, says the voice from the throne, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he shall dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be among them. Can you wait? Can you wait to be there and see the manifestation of God and to be able to talk to God and he talks back? What a day that will be. Only this time, it's gonna be far greater than Eden. For many reasons, not the least of which is we will be completely glorified. You know what that means? There is no chance of us sinning against God and being cast out of the garden again. We will be so holy, so sanctified that we will serve him in perfection, in absolute obedience for all of eternity. And therefore, there will be no sin to separate us from the presence of God. And God will be in our midst, and we will dwell with him forever. What a place and time that will be. And this voice tells us some other things about this new heavens and new earth, the cosmic renewal that Christ is working on. It says, there will be no tears. Can you imagine a place and a time where there will be no tears. Nothing that will bring a tear to your eyes. There will be no death. No more funerals. No more graveyards. No more eulogies. It's all done. No mourning, no crying, nothing to make anybody cry. No discouragement. No frustration, no irreconcilable differences, no strained relationships, no letdowns, no cancer, no wars, no disappointments on any level about anything. Can you imagine such a place? This is what the voice cries out and says, this is, is what it's going to be like when we once again walk with the living God and he dwells in our presence in the new heavens and the new earth, this cosmic new thing that Christ is doing. And at that level too, the Spirit has a ministry. The Holy Spirit has a work. And Paul tells us about it in Ephesians chapter 1. Backing up to verse 13, the apostle says, In him, that is in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, 
the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. He uses two words here, seal and pledge. A seal communicates several different metaphorical meanings from the literal meanings of antiquity. We're familiar with the king's seal where he would take a scroll and dip his signet ring in wax and put his seal over the scroll so that no one could open it without being in violation of the king's command unless they were authorized to do so. If it had the king's seal, it was his stamp of approval. It was a legitimate document from the king and only those given permission to open it could open it without being punished. This is why in the book of Revelation, there is great mourning when the scrolls are there but no one is found worthy to break the seals because there's no one there with the proper authority to do so because this is God's scroll. A seal brings authenticity, it represents that it's legitimate, and it closes something up. That's how we use the word seal a lot in our day. You seal something, you seal an envelope, and it's not to be opened unless it's by the intended recipient. Paul here calls the Holy Spirit, our seal. He is the authentication that we are going to make it to our inheritance. And he secures our place. If the Holy Spirit indwells you, you have a guarantee from God that you will get all the way to the end of your inheritance, that inheritance that Peter describes as unfading, it can't be defiled, it is sure and eternal. The Holy Spirit guarantees our participation in the new heavens and the new earth where there are no tears and no death and so on. Second word he uses here is pledge. The Holy Spirit is our pledge. He ministers to us in the new covenant by being the down payment or the earnest money is what this word means. Those of you who have bought a house understand something about this. You pay some money to show that you truly are interested in buying this house. And if you decide not to buy the house, you forfeit that earnest money. That was your earnest pledge that I will indeed carry out my end of this contract and, and buy this house. Here the Apostle Paul calls the Holy Spirit the earnest money of our future inheritance in the new heavens and the new earth. Again, if the Holy Spirit indwells you, if he has sealed you, if he has regenerated you, if he fills you, this is God saying, I'm going to give this to you to guarantee I will complete the contract. I will finish what I have started. You will make it to the end. And when the covenant, when the contract comes due, I will bring you into the new heavens the new earth, and there I will dwell in you and among you, not just in a down payment, partial sense that we have now, but in fullness. We will see him, John says, as he is. 
and the ministry of the Holy Spirit on the cosmic level, the new heavens, the new earth, when Christ is going to turn the whole universe upside down and renew it and restore it. His ministry in the new covenant is to say, I guarantee your inheritance in that place.